This week's message from Pastor Scott is titled, An Open Door. I was thinking about today's lesson, I was thinking about doors. I even went up and looked, I looked up a lot of the scriptures that have the reference to the word door or doors. Doors separate two spaces and make a way of exit or entrance. I think we all kind of know that. You go in a door or you go out of a door. But in the spiritual sense, God is the only one who opens or closes doors in our lives. And those doors include doors of opportunity, doors of promotion, doors of blessing, doors of power, and doors of ministry. And so the Lord is the one who opens the doors in our life. And sometimes we just have to wait till God opens the door. Amen. And then when the door is open, we can gain entrance to a new place in our life, a new position, perhaps, maybe a new ministry. Now I want to go over to Revelation 3.7. Irene shared last week the prophetic word, and it fits right into with our message today. So let's go back to Revelation 3. She read that last week. We're not going to read the whole thing, but we're going to look at Revelation 3.7. By the way, that's the last book of your Bible, (laughs) if you're looking for it. Revelation 3.7, and the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. Now, this is an interesting passage. The book of Revelation deals with the end times and and. John received this revelation on the Isle of Patmos, off the coast of of really Asia Minor. In this divine revelation, he saw the risen Christ in all his glory and splendor and wonder and beauty. Actually, he fell over like a dead man. Some people say, do people fall in the Bible? And it's absolutely true, they do fall. And in this case, John fell over like a dead man, and then the Lord touched him and raised him back up. So John was called the beloved apostle, the love apostle. And he was given the privilege to remain alive. He was the only of the 12 original apostles that was not martyred for Christ. Tradition says they tried to burn him in hot oil, and it didn't work. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? So they banished him to this island, and it was here where he had this wonderful vision, this revelation of the future and what was going to happen in the future. And it's, a, it's an interesting book. It's, yeah, I, I think it's, it's a rather difficult book because there are a lot of symbols and a lot of things that we're not quite sure what they mean. There are some people that will tell you it's very easy to understand. I'm not of that persuasion. I think there's a lot we don't understand about this book. But I believe that we are really living in the pages of this book. Well, the first three chapters of Revelation deals with these seven churches that were located in Asia Minor, where, which is modern-day Turkey. There was a message given to each one of these churches. And I believe God really does have a message for each church, right, uh, that exists. I think commentators would agree that when it says to the angel of the church of Philadelphia, it's probably speaking to the pastor or the, or the leaders of the church of Philadelphia. There may be a specific angel that resides over a specific church or location. But regardless of that, a message was given to these seven churches. And not all of them were pleasant. Jesus rebuked many of the, in fact, that he had a rebuke for all of them except Philadelphia. The rest of them, there were things that were wrong. Like in one case, Ephesus, they had left their first love. Laodicea, they'd become lukewarm, kind of blasé as Christians. And they weren't on fire for God. They weren't zealous for God. And they were rather like tipid milk. And Jesus said, because you are lukewarm, I will spew you out of my mouth. And, and, you know, that's a terrible position to be in as a Christian, kind of halfway in the boat and halfway out, you know. And the Lord wants us to be fully committed to him, right? Right. Well, the one we're reading about today, Philadelphia, there's no rebuke. It's all an encouragement and and praise to this church at Philadelphia. It's interesting, the church of Philadelphia was located in Asia Minor, as I mentioned. It was a small town known for its beautiful vineyards. 
and it was, had frequent earthquakes, which is kind of interesting. And this church pleased the Lord. It was pleasing unto God. That means that some churches please the Lord and some don't please the Lord. And this particular church did. It was a blessing to the Lord. It was termed a revivalist church from a prophetic point of view because all of these churches, they existed during the times of the early church and then they did not exist any longer, but they were representation of what God was going to do down through the church age. And most commentators believe this church, Philadelphia, is a last days church, which I believe we are a part of. I would say that we are part of that Philadelphian church. This last church, really before an apostate church, would be the church of Laodicea, is the last great move of God's spirit upon the earth. This great awakening, this revival that is coming. God said that he would combine the the latter rain with the early rain. And so we are a part of that. The former temple with the, the temple that is now coming together. One last outpour outpouring of God's Spirit upon the earth. Praise God. And so this church was, was on fire for God, and they pleased the Lord. Remember, God is the one who opens doors and closes doors of ministry. And in this particular passage, it says that the key of David, and I was, I was thinking about the key of David, and the key of David is really the, the authority granted to the church to usher in a move of God and to advance the church. So this, there was a supernatural power and authority given to this church to allow the Spirit of God to move freely amongst his people and to bring people into the kingdom. And so when there is a move of God, it is a supernatural, sovereign thing, sovereign work of God. Certainly we are to pray and ask the Lord to bring revival and to bring spiritual change and bring salvation to people, but ultimately it's God's decision where it's going to happen and how it's going to happen. I think of Evan Roberts in the Wales revival of 1904 or 5. This young guy was probably maybe 28. I can't remember exactly what his age was. But he'd come back into this small town, and there he was praying, and God led him eventually to begin to minister in this church. And the Wales revival began through this man, Evan Roberts. And thousands and thousands of people were saved during that move of God. But I believe that God is calling us as this church, Lighthouse, to be an integral part of that last revival that's coming, and that we will be involved in that revival. I will even be as bold to say that I think our church will have a major position in this revival on the West Coast. We've had other people prophesy about that. God positions different ministries in different places for different purposes. And so we're just waiting on the Lord to open that door, amen? The door that he opens and no one can shut. Some people think they can stop the work of God, you know, impede the work of God, but really no one can stop what God wants to do and accomplish. Praise God for that. In the early church, the Bible says the word of God prevailed. You'll see that over and over again. And when the word of God is prevailing and growing, then the ministry is growing, the work of God is progressing, and there is, there is a, there's a strong push of the things of God. And so that is the key, that the word of God must prevail. And we pray that the word would go as highest priority in our preaching and teaching because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You cannot live and grow as a Christian without his word. And so we constantly need to live by the word. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, by McDonald's alone. It's funny, McDonald's. I hardly ever eat McDonald's. But a couple times I've seen this billboard that said, if you buy one Big Mac after 9 o'clock p.m., you'll get another one free. Kind of intrigued me. I said, Marilyn, we got to try that. <laughs> so the other day we were out somewhere and we... It was after 9 o'clock, and 
And she goes, I don't really want one. I said, but no, you buy one, you get one free. And, you know, I hadn't had Big Mac in years. So I had the first one. It was great. Went down easy. <laughs> and then she wasn't going to eat the second one, and I ate the second one. Embarrassingly, I have to say I did. And so that, uh, no more of the Big Mac thing. Okay, I'm, I'm done with that, uh, even though I still enjoyed it. It was good. Boy, I'm always doing these commercials for McDonald's. It's terrible. But now you know about it, so you can run out after 9 o'clock and go get two Big Macs for the price of one. <laughs> Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. Amen? That's why we come to hear the word on Sunday. We come to receive the word. And the word of God is living, powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and tents of the heart. Praise God, his word is alive. Let's turn over to Acts 15. I want to take a look at a, a prophecy that came into the early church. And I believe it's a prophecy for our church today and the world today, and that which God desires to do in and through the body of Christ. Acts 15, the church had gathered together for this council, and they were discussing, the Jerusalem council was discussing things like, what do we do with the Gentiles, or what are the requirements for the Gentile church? And basically, they really didn't put any heavies on the Gentiles, that they were free to live by grace and grace alone, amen? But here we see that the word of God is being quoted out of the book of Amos, and it said that in verse 15, and with this the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, verse 16, After this I will return, says the Lord, I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will set it up, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. So here, uh, the, this prophecy is being quoted from Amos, and you can read about it in Amos, about what was going to happen on the day of Pentecost and in the early church. And it was a prophecy that God would restore the tabernacle of David. And we said that the tabernacle of David is the pinnacle of worship in the church. David being a man after God's own heart. And it is a representation of the highest form of worship and praise. And God said that he would restore that back into the church or the beginning of the church on Pentecost. And then the prophecy, I believe, applies to the far fulfillment that in the last days... Before the coming of Christ, God will once again raise up the tabernacle of David. He'll raise up this work of God, this move of God, and there'll be churches that will be at the center focus of that last move of God that will be places of high worship and high praise. And I believe it will center around a lot of joyful, the joyful anointing that comes upon the garment of praise in the church, where there's dancing and there's clapping and there's laughter and there's joy. And that's exactly how David, when he twirled around dancing, bringing the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, that's how he conducted himself with high praises and all kinds of instruments and drums and cymbals and all of those things that were involved in worship. And remember Michael, his wife despised him for dancing in his ephod, which was his undergarments under his, his robe, royal robe. And yet it pleased the Lord as he twirled there before the Lord and danced by the Spirit of God. And that anointing, and we had a prophecy years ago that said we would have a church like that where that kind of spirit of joy would come on our church and that there would be this wonderful action of praise and thanksgiving and worship before the Lord. Because really, worship and the Word of God are about, the, are about equal in priority in the church. We come to worship Him. That's what the wise man said, right? So worship is, very, is an integral part of the church. And then, of course, the teaching of the Word of God. So they're equally, equally important. And God said he would raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. So in my mind, the tabernacle of David has not been risen up yet, has not been raised up, excuse me. 
And so we're in a church age that's not right where God wants it to be. I believe we're close to it. I believe that our ministry is kind of on a cutting edge of what God wants to do in the church. I had an interesting dream last night. I was just, I'm not going to go into all the details, but it was things, things, I was involved in things in ministry in the church that was a demonstration of God's power, and it was miraculous, and it was amazing. And I believe God gave me that dream. You know, it just was, sometimes you just have these dreams, and you know it's from, Lord, from the Lord. I believe it was things he was showing me that were yet to come, that would have to be involved in our ministry. So, praise God, the, the Lord's got great plans for the church, and we're going to be a part of that. The Philadelphian church then was pleasing unto the Lord. We want to be, our ministry, we want our church to be pleasing to the Lord. Amen. We want to be pleasing to the Lord as individual believers. The Bible says that the Spirit of or God spoke audibly after Jesus was baptized, and he said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So, the greatest thing you can do in life is be pleasing to God right? We want to please the Lord with our lives, with our families, with our church. We want to bring praise unto God. One quick scripture. Let's go back to Job chapter 8. And I believe this is a prophetic word for us as well as a church. Job comes right before Psalms, if you're looking for Job. Psalms is like right in the middle of the Bible. And let's go to the eighth chapter, verse number 7, Job 8, 7. Though your beginning was small, yet your latter end would increase abundantly. And I believe that's a word for us that we are small. Yes, the Philadelphian church, Jesus said, you have little strength. And, and I think that means when little strength means your numbers are not great. You're not a large church. You're not a big mega church, they call them today. But regardless, there's great power and great blessing in your church and great promise for your church. In fact, the word goes on to say that God would keep that church from the hour of testing. And the hour of testing is this last seven-year tribulation period when the world will go through tremendous upheaval and, and plagues and wars and all kinds of disasters will be poured out on the earth. But God said he would keep his people from that place of trial, that he would remove the church, and we call that the rapture of the church. I told you there's a great movie called Left Behind. It's an old movie done in the 60s or 70s. If you ever get a chance to find it, I'd like to see it again myself. But it's the story of the church being raptured. And God said he'll take his church out in the moment in the twinkling of an eye and we'll just disappear, just like that plane disappeared. They're not talking about that plane anymore because nobody knows where it is. But regardless, the church will disappear just like that. And then the world will have to explain whatever, what happened to that. What happened to all those people? You know, I'm sure some will say, well, it was mentioned in the Bible. There was this rapture, the term rapture, of the church being taken to heaven. And then there'll be the alien, you know, description and, and all these kind of theories, conspiracy theories. We were talking about that the other day. Trying to explain where all these millions of people went. But we'll go to be with the Lord. Praise God. But that was the word given to this Philadelphian church. All right, well, let's go back to our story in Acts chapter 12. Though your beginning was small, your latter end would increase greatly or abundantly. Praise God. Acts chapter 12, and we're going to talk about Peter's open door. The door that God supernaturally opened for Peter. And it's interesting, too, in this, this story here, Peter is delivered. Now, he's been in prison before, and he was set free. And now he's in prison again, and he's going to be set free. But we all know that tradition says that Peter died for Christ. He was martyred. And what I've heard was that he didn't want to be crucified in the same way as Jesus would, was, so he asked to be crucified upside down, which 
I mean, if you even think about that, it's just awful. But that's how much he was privileged to die for Christ. But in this particular case, the Lord spares him, right? So that tells you God is sovereign in our lives, and he has a plan and purpose for our life, right? And at this point, Peter's ministry in his life was to go on. And it was a supernatural intervention of power, okay? So let's take a look at verse number 1, chapter 12. Now about this time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Herod, this Herod we're talking about is Herod Agrippa. He was not a good guy. None of these Herods were good guys. He was the grandson of Herod the Great. Now Herod the Great was the one who ordered that all the baby boys two years and under were to be killed. And there, there is weeping in Ramah and lamentation. And Rachel is weeping because her children are not, are no more. And so the lamentation was that Herod went and ordered all this butchering of all these babies, male babies, trying to do what? Kill the Christ child. That was his motive. But they had been warned in a dream, Mary and Joseph, to go to Egypt. And God said, out of Egypt I have drawn my son. So they went down to Egypt and then they came back out of Egypt, back into the land of Palestine, into the area of Nazareth. And that's where Jesus grew up, but he was born in Bethlehem, but then he migrated to Nazareth, which is Galilee, upper region. Now, speaking of the upper region, this Herod, Herod Agrippa, was the one that ruled. He was a Roman king who was placed by Caesar to rule and reign in upper Palestine. This was his position as the story unfolds. Well, we read here, we're not going to read it all, but he decides to take the life of James. James and John were great servants of the Lord. They were brothers, sons of Zebedee. The Bible says he was killed by the sword. And it's interesting, the sword suggests that he was put to death because he was leading people in false pagan worship, which is absolutely wrong and a lie. He was leading people to the true God, his son, Jesus Christ. Amen? But because this guy was a bad guy and he wanted the favor of the Jews who were opposed to this new sect called Christianity the way, he knew that he'd get favor. He didn't care. He was a Roman, but he knew they would like what he did. And just being so bodacious and bold, he ordered James to be martyred, killed, murdered. This is the first apostle that is killed now for their faith. Who was the first Christian martyr? Come on, we've studied this. Stephen. Amen. But this is the first apostle that dies. And the Bible says, our tradition says that all the apostles were martyred, except for John, which we've just talked about on the Isle of Patmos. So now, James has died, and he's got momentum, this king, Herod, and he's decided to incarcerate Peter, because he knows Peter is the leader of the church. And if he can kill Peter, he can really do damage to this Christian movement. And the Jews would be pleased. And he, he's trying to get favor from the Jews to greater his position as king in that area. So he takes Peter and he incarcerates him. We read, we read the story and throws him into jail. And when Peter is in jail, he is guarded by 16 soldiers in, in quads of four each. And two of them are chained to him and two are on the outside of the prison cell. And then they rotate. Now, probably the reason this was like this is the first time Peter was in jail, they escaped. Remember, the Lord set him free and the jail opened. And so this time they put an extra guard. They weren't going to let Peter get out. And I'm, I'm sure that Peter probably realized and the church realized they were probably going to execute Peter as well. 
I mean, they, they didn't hesitate with James. Now we've got the main leader of the, this Christian movement. Let's kill him too. And so there is Peter asleep in jail, which I find a little ironic because he probably knows he's on his deathbed or death sentence. And the, Herod was waiting till Passover was over, their religious holiday, the Jews, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They kind of existed, they coexist at the same time. Once those feasts were over, he was going to bring Peter out. Whether he was going to try him or not, I don't know, but, and probably execute him. But Peter was asleep. <laughs> you know, some people, well, I need some sleeping pills. I need Valium. I need something because I'm, I'm just so freaked out with life and anxious. And, and we could learn a lot from Peter because he was asleep. <laughs> he went to sleep. I mean, you know, I mean, if you think about it, he knew he was going to die probably, but he went to sleep. Well, God intervened supernaturally. The angel of the Lord showed up. Whether this was Jesus or not, I don't know. I'm not quite certain. Sometimes he takes on that reference, but it, regardless, an angel came. Probably not Christ. But he, he had to kind of hit him on, the, on his side. And he said, well, what did this angel look like? Well, I don't know. Did he have a human form? He could have, but he might not have had a human form. And the soldiers, obviously, they didn't wake up. It doesn't sound like it. But he had to kind of shake Peter out of his slumber, right? And, but he said, we got to move quickly. I find that interesting. So in other words, that was very important. This happened very fast, very quickly. And so the angel said, put on your sandals, put on your, your, your cloak, your, you know, your garments, and let's go. We're going. <laughs> and Peter thought he was like having a vision, and he didn't even think it was real. And he thought it was just something he was either dreaming or just didn't think it was actually happening. And the angel led him out through the gates of the prison and through the gate of the city and down a street, and then boom, he was gone. And Peter finally came to his senses and realized, boy, this is really happening. I'm out of here, you know. God has spared me, and I have been delivered. And so he goes to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, was associated with Peter, and (laughs) he starts knocking on the door, right? He's knocking on the door, hoping that somebody will open the door. And finally, a girl named Rhoda shows up. I mean, they're, the church is praying, right? They're fervently praying. But the, I think they're kind of, their faith is, is not, they're, they're thinking, Peter can't just show up. I mean, we're praying. That's what we want to do. We want him to be spared. Anyway, he's knocking at the door. And this little girl, Rhoda, goes to the door. She recognizes his voice, and then she walks away. And he's still knocking at the door, you know? And finally, um, you know, he gains entrance into the house. We can see this here in verse number 14 of chapter 12. When she recognized Peter's voice because of her gladness, she didn't open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. But they said to her, you are beside yourself, you're crazy. Yet she kept insisting that it was so, and they said it's an angel. Now Peter continued knocking. That's a long knock. <laughs> and, and probably thinking, I got to get, get inside. And when they opened the door, they saw him and they were astonished. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, go tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. Amazing. And they went to search for Peter and he was gone. And he was in another place. We're not going to hear from Peter too much more in the book of Acts. The the attention is going to now shift to Paul. So from Acts 13 on, really, we won't hear much, I don't, if, if anything, about Peter, very little about him. But he became Peter's place of, of 
residence was basically in Jerusalem. Uh, that was where he, he remained. Paul was the missionary going out and establishing churches. Now, I want to conclude with this last interesting supernatural event. We're not done with this Herod the king, right? He wanted to gain favor with the people, and so he did some acts of kindness for some people in the surrounding areas. And he came in, well, let's take a look at it. He comes in in all his royal splendor in verse 21 of Acts 12. So they set, so on a set day, Herod arrayed in, I'm sorry, royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Well, immediately the angel of the Lord struck him because he didn't give glory to God and he was eaten by worms and died. (laughs) So that was the end of Herod. Because he was, and the Bible says pride comes before a fall. And, you know, in our own life, we need to be careful that we don't get lifted up with pride. Because God said, if, you're, if, you, if you boast on yourself and you lift yourself up, you're going to fall. But humble thyself under the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you in due season. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So we have to purposely humble ourselves in our life and not give ourselves over to pride. The world is given to pride, right? It was the sin of Lucifer, his pride, that was responsible for him being cast out of heaven and one-third of the angels. So this Herod was lifted up, and they called him a god, and he's not a god. And there were times, and we'll see later, where even Peter, I believe it was Peter, James, and John, were addressed as a god. And then Paul himself was looked on as a god. But every time they were looked upon as a god, they always said, we're not, we're not a god, we're just men. Don't worship us, right? That's the act of humility. But this guy didn't do that. He received this praise and this adoration, and the angel of the Lord struck him dead. How he died, who knows? But it was an instant death. And that idea then the worms ate him is basically just a sign that he was dead. I mean, I don't think literal worms ate him. But whatever he died of was a very quick act that the angel struck him down. But the word of God grew and multiplied. See? So here we have two supernatural acts. A door is open, and Peter is released, and God has spared his life. And another door closes on a man who thought he, was self, thought he called himself God, and he was struck dead. But the word of God grow, grew, and we've got to keep praying in our life that the word of God would continue to grow. Because I'll tell you, as the key for your spiritual pilgrimage and your spiritual life, the word is, is, is so necessary in your life to keep hearing and hearing that word and receiving that word feeding on the word because you're feeding your spiritual person, the spiritual man on the inside, the spiritual nature. And that requires spiritual nutrients, which is the living word of God. And when you feed that inner man, that inner person, it grows in the things of God. It becomes mighty in the things of God. It becomes powerful that he would grant you to be strength with might by his spirit in the inner man. And we want to be strong in God, right? And the way you're going to get strong in God is through the word and continuing in the life of faith. (laughs) 